Well, we are in the last week of a short series in the Messianic Prophecies of Isaiah, and this week we come to Isaiah chapter 11. Now, if you remember, if Isaiah chapter 9 highlighted the, the divinity, that is the godness of the Messiah, that God himself somehow would come to dwell among humanity as one of us, well, Isaiah 11 highlights the Messiah's humanity and our great need and desire for a truly righteous king who will work for us for our salvation. And spoiler alert, I, you know, I think Isaiah 2, 7, 9, and 11, well, I think they're all about Jesus, and I think they're all fulfilled in him, and so I just assume that all the way through. But again, our text is Isaiah 11. I'm going to read uh, beginning verse 1 and go through about verse 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. And let's Go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that this word about your son, Jesus, who is the Messiah, would be a good one. We pray that it would penetrate into our hearts and our minds and even our feet and how we live. And I pray, I guess most of all, Lord, that we would see even just a little bit more just how much you love us and how much you care for us and how much you delight in us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, I'm becoming more and more convinced, and I'm sure it's showing up in my teaching and my preaching, uh, that though we live in arguably the most globally, materially prosperous time in all of human history, with America being the very pinnacle of that, we are at the same time witnessing unprecedented and sustained levels of anxiety and fatigue and depression and loneliness and isolation and stress. And this, of course, is, is borne out uh, by the data across all demographics, not just one or two, all demographics, age, race, social class, all of it. So, for example, you know, I personally feel like I'm in the best shape, physical shape of, of the last 20 years of my life. So going back to, I don't know, age 27, 28, something like that. But I often find myself 
mentally or emotionally tired or I feel burdened. I, I'm easily frustrated or easily annoyed. And, and some of that, of course, is, is the nature of my job, but I'm starting to, to really believe that, that maybe most of it uh, comes as a result of living in our culture. And lately, I, I've been drawn to both the work of, of Alan Noble, who is a Baptist scholar, and Adam Willard Jones, who is a Catholic scholar, both of which have, have similar but different takes on American culture and how hard it is on actual humans. Noble focuses on the cultural belief that we are autonomous, self-made individuals. It's the belief that we are sovereign over ourselves, you know, my body, my choice, that, that, that sort of thing. And in turn, then we have the responsibility and the duty really to define ourselves, to make something of ourselves, to defend ourselves, to please ourselves, uh, to validate ourselves and, and so on. It's why, you know, the most common theme you will, you will probably hear in every movie and TV show or whatever commercial uh, is, is the journey of self-discovery. Who am I? What is my inner voice telling me? How can I be free to discover who I really am? And uh, American culture is structured in such a way that, that it, it actually wants to reinforce these beliefs and it, it very much functions like a video game. So in order to be truly free, to truly be happy, you have to progress through these, these various levels of, I don't know, education, status, jobs, health, uh, or whatever, you know, level, leveling up, fixing yourself, achieving a new status, a new identity. And then once you've done these things, you will truly be happy. You will be enlightened. You will finally be who you truly are. And this is, you know, precisely what a New Year's resolution is aimed at. You fix yourself by doing this thing, and then you will finally be the, the happy self-realized person you've always dreamed you could be. And even as I say this, we all know this is false. We all know this is false, but still we keep playing the game because it's, it's the game that's on offer. It's the air we breathe. And a perfect illustration of just how false this is and how this, this actually works is how most companies, just go on TV today, how most companies that sell supplements or exercise programs, how they actually go about advertising. It's a well-known practice that companies will go looking for people who are already very healthy or very fit. The, and they'll go looking for them at places like the CrossFit Games, if you've ever watched that, or a bodybuilding competition or, you know, whatever. And then they pay these people when they find them. They pay them to not exercise and to eat badly for a couple of months. And so what you think is the after picture, you know, the really healthy cut lean picture is actually the before picture. They took that picture first. And what you think is the before picture, you know, the fat out of shape picture is what the people were paid to become. It's the illusion that if you take this 30 day challenge or you buy this pill, you too can have 8% body fat and look like a fitness model. And what you don't see is that it took those people years of dedicated, disciplined, hard work to get that way, and that having that particular look is very much dependent on your genes and is actually unsustainable 
without serious health problems following it. So if you've been watching ESPN and you've seen the exercise, this new gear that fits right up against your wall called Tonal, they have LeBron James working out on that piece of equipment. And the idea is you too can look like a 6'8", 258-pound, perfect specimen of a man. Never you mind, he's been training harder than that equipment since he was 15. But it's the illusion. It's the falsehood, and we buy into it. And what they absolutely don't want you to know is that even if you figure out the truth, even if, I'm not saying anything that's surprising you, right? We know this. And if you figure out what, you know, real health and real fitness looks like, you can put in all the right work, just like LeBron James has, and still never look like what Instagram is selling you. And, and Noble points out that, there are basically two responses then to how our culture is structured in this, this video game, pull this lever sort of way. It's affirmation and resignation. Affirmation believes what society is telling them and, and engages in the game wholeheartedly. So they, they strive towards ever greater success or greater acquisition of wealth or experiences or pleasure, like you know, pulling the lever of a slot machine over and over again with the hope and the expectation that they will eventually hit a jackpot and their life will eventually one day look like what we're being sold. And, and all it takes is a few examples. It just takes a few examples of people who hit it big to keep us in the game. After all, think about you know what the billboards we see for lawyers or casinos. This is what the payout has been. You too can win big. And so we keep pulling the lever with the hope if it happened to them, it can happen to us. But then there are those who've played the game and they've lost. They pursued high grades. They pursued college. They pursued whatever the Instagram influencers were, were presenting to them. And they pull the lever over and over again, never getting anything back. And they finally hit them. I can't compete. I can't compete. I'm never going to measure up and I just can't win this game. It's like the kid who realizes for all his effort and hard work, he's never gonna be a starter. Maybe he'll never be more than a role, role player off the bench and so he, he quits. And in American culture, this is an almost unforgivable thing to do. And this is exactly what happened to me in college in my pursuit to be a professional musician, no matter how hard I worked, I would never be a tier one guy. My friends were outpacing me. I could see what the standard was and my hands were not gonna do it. So it was not enough to be a very good musician. I would never be the best. So I quit that game. This happened to me a second time. I changed games. When it, it happened to be the second time when it came to the highly competitive academic market when I realized my CV, that is my resume, was such that the best I could hope for was to be an adjunct professor barely scraping by or to work in some no-name college in the middle of the Midwest where I do not want to live, where I could barely provide for my family and probably couldn't afford to both pay back my student loans and buy a house. So I quit that game too. So it's two versions, really, when you think about it, of stuck. Those who affirm the system are stuck 
pulling the lever over and over again, hoping for a different result, that they will actually win. And those who are resigned to the system are still stuck in the same game. They just don't play it to win anymore, even as they can't see around the game itself. It's like those people who think they, they have to let their kids, for example, be on social media, despite all the data that shows how hard it actually is on kids, especially girls. And why do they think they have to do it? Because this is just how kids communicate these days. And you can't say no to the system. Or it's like my friends in their, their late 40s and early 50s who ask the question, they've said this to me, is this as good as it gets for me? Is this it? Am I supposed to do this for another 20, 25 years and then retire and then just wait to die? As Jones, the Catholic scholar, points out, our American culture is actually structured as a tyranny. No, there, there's no like head Hitler at the top of the heap. It's just the whole bureaucracy of the system. It's the whole way the culture is structured. We are sold a picture of freedom, like how many different shows you can watch and how many different flavors of chips or booze you can consume as you watch them. But in reality, we have been enslaved to our selfish desires in service to major corporations or governments and their own selfish desires. And all of us feel it. All of us feel it. You're not crazy for feeling anxious or depressed or frustrated or hopeless. I understand why most Americans self-medicate, whether it's with alcohol or food or binge-watching Netflix. I totally get it. Now, believe it or not, with that... Not so hopeful introduction. That takes us to Isaiah 11. And what we find there is an alternative vision of the good life for what our, our future hope will be, for what a life without tyranny looks like and what it is to not have to be your own anymore because you belong to another. Well, Isaiah says, this is the first verse, Isaiah says, a shoot will come forth from a stump. So imagine what was once a mighty forest that has been burned to the ground, like some post-war scene. In the midst of all that black and grays of a burned out forest, there's a, a single green growth growing from a stump. And Isaiah names the stump Jesse, as in King David's father. Now, Jesse, of course, was a nobody. God chose David, the youngest nobody son from a nobody family from a nobody town called Bethlehem to be king. And he promised that guy a dynasty uh, that would last forever. And by the time we get to Isaiah's day, which was a few hundred years after David, the glory of David's kingdom was well in decline. It was going well downhill and it would soon be in ruins. And this, this promised Messiah, as, as Isaiah tells it, would be like a reset on David's origins. This Messiah would come when the hope of Israel's glory seemed like a pipe dream, when things were actually pretty oppressive, though they were being able to muddle through, when Israel looked not much better than a smoldering stump of a forest. And, and like David, the Messiah would come from the same backwater town of Bethlehem. Well, in verse two, we read that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon this human king. And we see this, this sort of imagery with other important figures in the Old Testament as well. Folks like Moses and Elijah. But this goes 
so much farther, so much farther uh, with the Spirit of God here, not just being influencing whether, but he makes his home. He rests on this king. And of course, this is why Jesus' baptism is such a big deal in the Gospels, and rightly so. I mean, what, what is basically described in the Gospels about Jesus' baptism is what we see being promised here the Spirit of God would rest, it would come and descend from heaven upon this Messiah. So this is a human king that is filled with the, the Holy Spirit. And what follows then are, are three pairs of attributes that typify how the Spirit-filled king will rule. Well, first, he has wisdom and understanding. Wisdom, as Jan Ritterboss puts it, is the gift to uh, fathom the essence of, and purpose of things, and also to find the right means for achieving that purpose. So this is not like how, how modern people approach wisdom, that is being able to you know, rattle off long division or getting a high test score on the ACT or having degrees from the right schools, or whatever. No, to, to have understanding is the ability to discern circumstances and relationships and what's actually happening there. And we can see glimpses of this was Solomon during his reign and how he, he judged cases. But we see this far more, far more with Jesus when, for example, in John 4, he explains the Samaritan woman's past history to her, having just met her. Or John 8, when the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery to Jesus to see what he would say, and he both silenced her accusers and forgave the woman. See, we, we partially see the truth. We can't see all the angles. We think we can. No, we can't. We read motivations into people or tones of voice, and even in our most charitable attempts at listening, we often misunderstand or misinterpret people. Jesus perfectly reads the room. To have counsel and might, this, this next pair, are, are directly related to both wisdom and understanding. It's the gift of making the right decisions and the ability to carry those decisions out. So think about it. A person can know the right thing to do and either not be able to do it for a lack of ability or maybe they don't have the authority to do it or they fail to do it because of fear or indifference or, or sinfulness or something like that. Likewise, a person may have the power to accomplish much good but, but not the discernment to know what the good thing to do is. This king knows what to do. He is able to do it, and he will do what is right. Isaiah says he will also have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, knowledge in this sense is experiential knowledge of, of God. It's the sort of knowledge that comes from having a loving and trusting relationship with God. This, this king knows and loves God, and even more so knows how God wants his people to be governed. So, Again, you really got to look at Solomon as almost the model of this. Think back to Solomon and why he asked for wisdom. What was, why did he ask for it? It was so he could know how to govern God's people well. That's what's on view here too. This king's heart is set on God in a way that Solomon's was not. And his wisdom, his understanding, his power, his might, his knowledge far exceeds Solomon's. So this king's delight then as we read it here, is the fear of the Lord. And literally, this is fascinating. In the Hebrew, it's something he smells. 
It's something he smells. So imagine how your favorite food smells. We're just coming off of Christmas, right? Whatever that dish is, or maybe it's the whole kitchen when everything's being cooked together, however that smells in you and makes you salivate, makes you long to eat it, that's how this king responds to God and his ways. He savors it. He desires it. He wants to consume it and do it. Now, believe it or not, this is how God intended humanity to be. So for good reason, the New Testament teaches that what God is working in us through this Messiah in the power of this same spirit that rests upon this Messiah are hearts that are set on him that love what he loves. We are being made into the image of the true human, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And what the Bible says over and over again is that we are not our own. Think about this Messiah. There's nothing about him that says independence. Nothing. We are not our own. We do not define ourselves. We do not validate ourselves. We do not make something of ourselves or prove our worth. What the Bible teaches is the antithesis. It is the very opposite to the American game of life. So what the Messiah does for us, among other things, is is rule over God's creation as God always intended for us to do, And at the same time, he is actively redeeming and restoring our humanity to us. So one day we will be like the Messiah in that our hearts will be fully set on God and we will fully love what he loves. Our delight will be the fear of the Lord and we will savor it. Now, God's not saying here, okay, you hear this? Get yourself together then. Nor is he saying, now that you realize just how messed up American culture is and how enslaved you tend to be to it, get over it and follow me. No, he's he's saying, I will fix you. I will heal you. I treasure you. My delight is in you. I have given you worth and value because guess what? I made you. And what's crazy is that God is already at work in us now. To, to teach us these things, to move us to these things. Will he ultimately do this for us in the future where we are completely wholehearted? Yes, but he's already working us now. And all I'm doing in this sermon is basically reminding you of who God is and who he says you are in the Messiah. That we have to hear this week in and week out. Really, you gotta hear this on a daily basis. Should show you just how pervasive and strong, the one-armed bandit of American individualism really is. So how will this king rule? Well, verses three and four tell us that he will not judge, which by the way, judging is a key aspect of ruling. He will not judge by what he sees or hears. That is, he's not taken in by appearances or by flattery. So he's not put off by a person's wealth or by their lack of wealth. He's not partisan. He can't be bought. No, he, he can see into the depths of a person and he judges their character and their heart. So there, there's, there's no putting on airs with this king. There, there's no fooling this guy. It's why he, he deals righteously and fairly with the poor and the meek, which are two groups of people represented, those, those people in every society with the least amount of power and authority who are often the people who struggle to get fair treatment under the law. 
But it's deeper than the equitable legal treatment, as important as that is. As Ritterboss again points out, this king acts exactly as we all hope a good king would act. He will do righteously. He will protect the weak from those who threaten them. So, for example, just as my wife and children have every right to expect me to rise up to protect them, protect them against, I don't know, an intruder or a bully or something like that, so too do we have the right to expect our king to act on our behalf, to act in our favor. And this, of course, is exactly what God did for Israel in the Exodus and continually offered Israel afterwards. And it's exactly what they said no thanks to. Now, in turn, this king, by the word of his mouth, which harkens back to Genesis 1, will strike the earth and destroy those who oppose him. So two things on this. First, when you look at the full testimony of Scripture, it's clear this king offers grace and kindness to whoever wants it, but he will not offer it forever. And eventually, he will strike down those who oppose him and his rule. Why? Because he's good and he's righteous. So it's very revealing that, that, for example, God sent Jonah to Assyria, an incredibly wicked people, in the hopes that that country would turn. And you know what? They did. They did for a time. But in chapter 10 of Isaiah, God promised to destroy the same country of Assyria hundreds of years later because of her arrogance and her continued wickedness and her rejection of God and how she hurt and destroyed other people. And guess what? Assyria has been gone for millennia. Now, second, and related to this, this king, he does not need some other means of power to do his will. In the Old Testament, we see him doing that, but he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't need a bomb. He doesn't need an army. He's not on the same uh, level with his enemies at all. No, like God the Father, he speaks, and it is so. So we, we see this very same speaking sort of action with Jesus when he healed people and cast out demons and even raised people from the dead simply by his speech. This human king who is fully dependent on God has the same power to accomplish God's will through his speech. Now, most kings or countries have some sort of symbol or a coat of arms or, or what have you, and usually it's a symbol of power. Right or some kind of symbol of national pride. We even see this with college mascots, right? Unless they're trying to be ironic, I guess, uh, or with people, you know, trying to post their best life online. And it's it's all posturing, right? It's all posturing. It's all the appearance of st- strength or success or happiness or whatever. After all, you know, nobody is well. Nobody's really interested in voting for humble, soft-spoken leaders, right? We want strong, gregarious types. Well, what marks this king out? Why his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. What he wears like a banner is righteousness and faithfulness. It's not a tiger. It's not a gun. It's righteousness and faithfulness. This king is fully dependent on God and fully walks in light of him. His strength is the Lord, and he's unlike anything the world has to offer. So Isaiah continues with basically the question, great, what will his kingdom be like? Well, verses six through nine give us a a vivid picture of it. 
Now, as an aside, there's a debate of whether we should read this section literally or, or figuratively, as in, will a two-year-old really be able to play over the nesting hole of a cobra? Will carnivores really become herbivores? And even as I don't think a, a green shoot actually came out of a stump called Jesse in Bethlehem, I don't think we should read these verses literally, even as I think this passage is giving a vivid and true picture of peace, that is shalom, that goes beyond our ability to comprehend it or really to put words to it. So, for example, you know, just as Revelation 12 describes real historical events in vivid imagery, you know, Satan attacked, he went after Jesus at his birth, but there was no actual great red dragon waiting in the stable to eat the baby. So too, this imagery describes a future historical reality, but it gives it in terms that shows you just how remarkable and how deep it actually goes. So starting with verse six, we, we get a series of pairs. And I hope you noticed through the Hebrew here, it keeps doing these pairs to help you think through them. So verse six pairs predators with prey and makes them out as being at peace. So wolves and lambs, leopards and goats, lions and fattened calves, and a little child will lead them all. Verse seven pairs animals that eat opposite kinds of food, so herbivores and carnivores, that are often at odds with each other, but they're here in this scene just chilling out together. Verse eight pairs venomous snakes and children playing at ease around them, which harkens back to Genesis three. Verse 9 ramps it up even farther and gives a picture of humanity at peace with God and in turn with each other. And at the very center of this, the reason for all of this shalom is the root of Jesse. There he is again, the Messiah, the king that will set the world to rights. So what is in view here is a world that is no longer at war. And it's like what we read in Isaiah 2 earlier in the month where it says there, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But the imagery in Isaiah 11 leads us to see that actually this piece goes far deeper than we think it does. And it's more than just the cessation of violence of nation against nation, as important as that is. So what we see here, basically the picture is painting is the animal kingdom is at peace with itself. And humanity is at peace with the animal kingdom. And humanity is at peace with humanity. And most importantly of all, humanity is at peace with God. And in turn, the result for at least humans is that humanity's place within creation will have been restored. That's what's in view with a child leading dangerous animals or toddlers playing over venomous snakes, you know, holes. It's an echo of Genesis 2 when God led the animals to Adam and asked him to name them. See, creation's balance and its order and our place as God's image bearers and all that has been restored. So instead of seeking to hurt and destroy, which is what evil does, God's temple now will extend over all of creation even as humanity will cover the earth in full knowledge of the Lord imaging the Messiah himself. Now just remember humanity's calling in Genesis 1 and 2. These are foundational texts for understanding what a human is, is to bring God's image to bear over all of creation. So the fundamental calling to have dominion and stewardship, which has been completely frustrated and which we feel every day, is going to be restored to us in the Messiah. And that's exactly what's on view in Revelation 21. Revelation 21 and Isaiah 11 are two pictures of the same reality. 
the same future that's coming. So if and when you think about the gospel, one really important way of thinking about it, and and you rarely, if ever, hear this in our part of the country, is that God is making all things new. That's the picture. God is making all things new. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus says in Revelation 21.5. So chances are, are pretty good that... Given everything I've said, you you are either trying to affirm what our culture is selling, running the race, pulling the lever, climbing the ladder, hoping that eventually things will give you the happiness that you've been promised, or you have resigned yourself that this is just how life is, and you've got to play it out until one day you die. Because what else is there? How do I escape this? Well, is it a good idea maybe to limit or even get off of social media altogether that's feeding you this? Yeah, it's a pretty good idea. Is it a good idea to maybe limit or even quit whatever means of of self-medication you're using, whether it's booze or food or whatever? Yeah, that's probably a pretty good idea. But even if you do those things, it's not like you can go off grid and escape being part of American culture. I mean, what are we gonna be? the Unabomber or something like that? No, God is not telling you to do that. I mean, think about when he gives this. This is when Israel is under her own oppression for her own sin, and the promise of this comes under the Roman Empire. God's not telling you to try and escape it. You can't love the world by escaping the world. Besides, you know, as sociologists and anthropologists have argued for a long time, Cultures are structured around religious beliefs and deepest convictions. So even if you were to somehow escape American culture, there's still the issue of your heart, and you can't escape that. So the temptation at this point for me, and just you know, full disclosure, this sermon was incredibly hard to write, and I've rewritten it multiple times. Well, the temptation for me is to turn this into a Christianized version of a New Year's resolution. So it's like the experience Scott Swain, who's president and professor at RTS in Orlando, he recently tweeted, and yes, I get the the irony that I said, maybe you should get off social media, and I'm quoting social media. He wrote this, though. He's one of the only reasons I'm still on Twitter. He wrote, just received the mailer from a neighborhood church that offers to help me experience a better life by becoming better at life. Says 2022 could be my personal grand opening. Cool, cool. This is precisely what America is selling you. Get a better life by getting better at life. And for some of you, that might actually really resonate. Give me the steps, man, and I'll do them. I want to get better. But for some of you, it's just one more burden that seems unbearable. I have to do this too. It's like at this point right now for some of you, if I say, let's talk about a daily Bible reading plan for the year. Some of you think, no. And some of you are like, yes. Which one are you using? That's the point. We're stuck in this game of how can I improve myself? And the reason this is a temptation for me is because I myself struggle against the fundamental thing this text wants us to know. See, I too am an American and I feel this stuff deeply. But I want you to notice Not once in this passage did Isaiah tell us what God expects us to do. 
No, this text is entirely about who God is and what he will do for us. And I'm fully aware, I'm fully aware that our growth as a people of God is directly tied to how we come to know how much God loves us. And I'm convinced, like Israel before us, we don't really believe that God loves us. It's probably my number one, no, it is, my number one struggle as a human. Every idol, every temptation, every fight, every annoyance, every last bit of it comes because either I devalue God's love, I don't believe it, or I think some other thing will love me more. And so I'm gonna pursue that. See, Isaiah 11 is a promise of God's love. Jesus fulfills that promise and he gives his life for us in turn, working in us to make us fully whole and human. So he, he has promised, he has promised that the way to life and to happiness and to contentment and to peace and to discovering who you truly are is not found in yourself or what levers you can pull or what W's you can post online. It's found in him alone and he's freely offering it to you. So I'm not offering you a plan to a better life. I don't have steps to give today. Not one. I'm just gently trying to remind you and myself that the way, the truth, and the life loves you. He loves you. He knows you're struggling. He knows your shame. He knows what you're hiding. He knows how you self-medicate. He knows, and yet he loves far more, far more than you realize. It's like what Eugene Peterson's son, Leif, said at his father's funeral, that his dad only had one sermon, that he had fooled everyone for 29 years of pastoral ministry, that for all his books, and he wrote a lot of them, he only had one message. It was a secret leaf said his dad had let him in on, on early in life. And it was a message that leaf said his dad had whispered in his heart for 50 years. Words he had snuck into his room to say over him as he slept as a child. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. That's Isaiah 11. That's true for you too. Happy New Year. Your God loves you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. You're so kind. You're so gracious. As Eugene Peterson says, you are on our side. You are coming after us, and you are relentless. We thank you for this. We pray all of this in the Messiah's name, Jesus. Amen.